Welcome everyone to a special Axion collaboration edition of VentureCast Rebuilt. VentureCast is brought to you by Axion Venture Lab, a global early stage investor in fintech and financial inclusion. And I'm your host as always, Vikas Raj. On this episode, we will take a fresh look at how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the lives and financial health of vulnerable populations around the world and dive into what is being done or what can be done to support them in this crucial time. To help us do that, we are speaking with a very special guest today, Mayada El-Zogbi. Mayada is the Managing Director of the Center for Financial Inclusion. And uh, the Center for Financial Inclusion, or CFI for short, is an action-oriented think tank that develops insights and collaborates with stakeholders to achieve a comprehensive vision for financial inclusion CFI is also a partner and a frequent collaborator within the Axion family uh, with Axion Venture Lab. So with that, I will turn it over to Mayada. Mayada, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Can you start by telling us a little bit more about CFI and, and your work? Thank you so much, Vikas, for inviting CFI and me to join this uh, podcast. I, I was just telling you how much I enjoy podcasts, so it's fun to be on here. Thanks. Um, so CFI is, um, is an independent think tank that is housed in Axion, so we're part of the Axion family, but we do operate independently in that we were created by Axion to actually serve the broader inclusive finance community. And we were created around 12 years ago in response to a different crisis, which was the, you know, the financial crisis and then also microcredit crisis, if you remember back then. At that time, there was a lot of concern around microcredit institutions overcharging customers. There were issues around over-indebtedness crises in different parts of the world. You may remember the dramatic uh, suicides of Indian farmers who couldn't repay and they were being harassed by MFIs. CFI was created at that time to help the industry address the most pressing concerns at that time. And then at that period, we really thought consumer protection was the priority for our industry. So we spent quite a lot of time bringing together stakeholders towards a shared responsibility to consumers. And we created what was called the consumer protection principle. These are issues that were, you know, trying to, to highlight things like transparent disclosure of pricing, responsible pricing, uh, fair and respectful treatment of customers, complaint mechanisms, and so on. So over the years, as CFI has continued to serve the needs of the inclusive finance industry, we've evolved our portfolio and our work and our priorities. Most recently, we've been prioritizing financial health and concepts around measurement of financial health. And then during this time, we, we still believe consumer protection has a very important role to play, but we're shifting ourselves a little bit to reflect the needs of the biggest risks today. So we, we are seeing the new use of data, new players like the big techs and the e-commerce platforms and so on. And we're seeing a need to shift the way we think about influencing them and getting them to think responsibly towards their customers. Got it. So, so it, it, it's sort of interesting. CFI was started in response to the last large financial crisis and, and some of the things that happened around that time. Now we find ourselves in arguably a, a larger and slightly more global financial crisis and health crisis. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about financial health differently in this moment, what the crisis means for sort of low-income populations around the world? So the impact of COVID-19 
has not been equal across all segments or across all countries. And there have been a lot of variables that have influenced the severity of the impact on people. On the one side, there has to do with health policy and infection rates. And there you have very different countries taking different positions. So you've had some countries that have actually done an incredible job of protecting customers, protecting people with sound policy. And then you've had others, of course, who continue to be in denial. And linked to the health policy and infection rates, you've had, you know, different responses in terms of lockdown measures, and those have had very different impacts on people. So in the countries that have had very quick, swift, smart health policy responses, and here I'm going to name Vietnam and Myanmar, for example, relatively speaking, they've been better than others. You've had very limited impact on low-income populations. And then you have other countries that have, like I mentioned, that have been in some denial stage of some kind or have tried to politicize the situation and you've had very negative effects on low-income people. So a country like Tanzania, for example, has not done much and continues to live in in a certain state of denial. And then countries like Bolivia, who are taking a very political perspective to the crisis and their response. But in general, most of the low-income people, the impact on them it's really driven by what sector they're in. So, you know, think about rural communities, think about urban communities, the kinds of businesses people are engaged in. These all have a massive impact on the kind of impact that they've experienced. I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. And then the other variable that, that has had a very big impact is how connected, how digitally connected people are. So yeah. you have some markets, I think we've all heard about this, like China, where you, you, know, you have a very robust digital ecosystem where you had actually some micro and small enterprises who have done well as a result of, of COVID-19 in the sense that they were already digitally connected and selling through e-commerce platforms and actually grew their businesses. You had about a third of, of small enterprises in China that did that. So it's really interesting to see that. In terms of the groups that, that we are seeing that are having the most negative impacts, want to feature the, you know, women globally have obviously experienced a disproportionate negative effect of COVID-19 in the sense that most women work in the care industry. That means they are most likely to get exposed. Women also have more care responsibilities, which basically means that when schools were shut down, women have had to take care of the kids and therefore um, have not been able to resume their informal enterprises or go back to work. Women have also been in industries that have been most heavily impacted, service industries, for example, and many of those have had to shut down. And you have other cases where women, again, are the factory workers, like the garment workers in, in, in Bangladesh. There's been huge demand side declines in the clothing industry, and therefore mm-hmm. the future of these workers is unclear. Then you've had other groups like migrants who have also had, I would say, a disproportionate impact. Research coming out of Yale University looking at the migrants in Bangladesh has shown that the income of migrants is significantly lower than non-migrant communities. Then, of course, you know, micro and small enterprises just in general have experienced much bigger effects than large corporations, of course, or large businesses. And, and there again, it's, you know, very sector specific. Now, we've been doing at CFI research on micro and small enterprises globally, and we've just released data on Nigeria. And there we found, you know, there were big declines in profitability among micro and small enterprises. The biggest effect is really on job employment. There's been a contraction. We surveyed Uh, slightly over 700 micro and small enterprises that represented around just say roughly 2,400 jobs. Around a third of them have been lost since the pandemic started. But it's not all gloom. Some of these MSMEs actually believe that they will resume business 
quite, you know, soon after the shutdown measures are uh, eliminated. And so generally they were still optimistic that things can resume to normal. You said a lot there, Mayada, that I want to follow up on. But as you talk through some of these sectors that were particularly hard hit, women, migrants, micro businesses, what is being done by CFI and the partners that you work with to support these particularly vulnerable customers during this time? So CFI, we're in the knowledge business and we want to facilitate and give information to the stakeholders that need it. So policymakers, investors, providers, donors, and so on. So we've seen our role as shedding light on what is happening to consumers. So for example, the research that I just shared with you, that's one of the things that we feel that it is our responsibility to do is to get that information out as quickly as possible to as many stakeholders as possible to understand the impacts uh, of COVID-19 on the customers that we care about. So that's number one. The other is to actually engage directly with these stakeholders that I was mentioning and looking specifically at research and knowledge that will help them do their jobs better. So we've been doing work on the policy measures that have been taken and trying to understand what are the policy measures that can actually support the providers that are serving these customers. So we're engaging with policymakers on that agenda, and we've just released a paper on some of the liquidity measures that policymakers have taken. In some cases, these are not actually helping FSPs. For example, the way moratoriums are being executed around the world, they've had very different effects depending on how they have been structured. So this is the kind of role that we see ourselves taking in this work today. In the midst of this sort of gloom, as as you described it, are there any particularly promising innovations or products or ways of reaching customers that have helped provide more stability or enabled a recovery for low-income emerging markets populations? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Obviously, what you guys are doing is really great, and I've, I've listened in to some of your prior podcasts that feature some of the innovations that, are, that your partners are doing, which I think is wonderful. But I think, you know, more broadly, you know, everyone right now is, is looking at how can we shift delivery to more digital means, because that's mm-hmm. the, the way that we will reduce infection. That's the way that we can uh, spur recovery. And you're seeing kind of different things happening. So I'm just going to start in the kind of the old space, which is microfinance, where you are seeing even microfinance institutions trying to shift towards digital delivery. CGAP does this pulse survey that they've been doing every two weeks the last couple of months, and they have found that about a third of the microfinance institutions that report to that survey, that they're making efforts to divert to digital collection, digital uh, disbursement, and so on. Others are moving towards creating call centers so that at least that the face-to-face part of meeting customers is reduced and they can engage with customers by phone. The bigger trend is really government disbursement of cash transfers. And here you've, you've seen a massive increase in the number of countries who have realized that this is not a problem that can be solved purely through commercial means, that you see it in the United States, you're seeing it all around the world, that something like 150 plus countries are expanding or launching new cash transfer programs, social protection programs. And so then all of a sudden this opens up, you know, in, in some cases, the digital ecosystem is there where governments can use whatever channels they have in other uh, situations that it's not quite ready. And so there's potential innovations that can come alleviate some of the bottlenecks that exist. So one of the bottlenecks that we're aware of is how to onboard customers who don't have accounts and how do you mm-hmm. do that digitally in this situation. So you're seeing some innovation around digital IDs. 
a lot of this work, though, I have to say was pre-COVID. And it's just that COVID is allowing those countries to really leverage this infrastructure. In Singapore, there's something called MyInfo, which is a digital ID system, and it allows banks and all others to do their customer due diligence remotely. People then can authorize the sharing of their data. I think it's has huge potential for copycats elsewhere. I think it's really interesting. In Pakistan, you have something similar, the, a national ID system that has allowed the government to actually distribute cash quite rapidly. Again, FSPs and others can, can do their customer due diligence remotely in Pakistan. And then just in terms of products, you're seeing a lot of different innovations, which are really interesting. So obviously credit, there's a massive demand for credit for micro and small enterprises that we've just talked about. So you're seeing lots of players coming in mostly in the e-commerce space, but you're seeing all these banks and e-commerce coming together and using that data to deliver credit to micro and small enterprises. So in, in China, you have MyBank that's offering support to 15 million micro and small enterprises. I mean, the moment you, you say China, of course, we're talking right. massive numbers, but you, you see similar things in Latin America and the Philippines with you know just different players leveraging data to deliver credit. You're seeing innovations in the remittance space. And I think with you guys, of course, PayNow is an important player. I think e-commerce is really where you're seeing a lot happening, which is, you know, how do you onboard micro merchants into the e-commerce platforms? So in Indonesia, uh, you may have heard of Bukalapak, for example. It continues to onboard customers. And uh, what I read recently is that it, it's increased its gross profits. That's what I can say. I, can't, I don't have a number for the number of merchants, but it's increased its gross profits threefold since uh, in the first half of 2019. That gives you a sense of the number of informal or micro merchants that are getting onto those platforms. And you're seeing similar things in, in other countries. In insurance, you're also seeing some innovation, which I think, I personally believe that there's huge potential in the insurance space. Again, most of this has to happen not during the crisis, it should happen pre-crisis and should you know, people that could then leverage it during crisis. Right, right. Um, but nonetheless, there are some innovations. So in Uganda, you have a, a company called Turaco. I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce that, but they've actually created a COVID product. That's an insurance product, which is really interesting. So, um, by the way, I entirely agree with all that you just shared. And just picking up on the last thing, we also think this is a particularly interesting time for insurance and insure tech innovators. And, and we interviewed Rohan from Toffee several weeks ago in Delhi that's doing just that and working on new products in this moment. But let me ask you one, one last question, Mayara. You talked about how this crisis is disproportionately affecting vulnerable populations you know, what does the future hold for these populations? And you know, as you think about the financial inclusion movement writ large, has COVID and this entire crisis exposed any opportunities that might move us toward a more financially inclusive world over time? Yes, absolutely. I think that what COVID has revealed, and I wrote a blog about this a couple of months ago, is that we can't solve all problems with a purely commercial solution. What COVID has revealed is that we need collaboration and we need a multi-stakeholder approach to trying to address some of the, the vulnerabilities that are being revealed through this pandemic. So there's work to be done on all fronts. Now in the blog, I, I featured where I saw huge potential. Obviously, digital payments is the first. I mean, there's no question that countries that had the digital ecosystem in place where there were already innovations in markets that you started and you could have responses quicker to market, right? No question. So that's something that I think we will continue to drive that agenda. I think that 
the role of government in supporting the digital ecosystem and the digital infrastructure and the policy and enabling environment will be heightened right now. So that's very positive. This issue around safety nets and insurance, I feel is critical and we need to definitely, I see this as a huge opportunity to do so much more in our industry. There's already a, a few great examples uh, out there. So we, we need to build and scale these kinds of solutions. Another area that I feel has huge potential that I think COVID-19 has, has shown some opportunities for us is the role of financial services in supporting the food supply chain, you know, mm -hmm. agriculture and food supply. I highlighted that in my blog. Now that it's August, so two months since I wrote that blog, I'm a little bit wiser. I will say one more thing, which is I do think that COVID-19 has also revealed an opportunity towards the green economy. I really believe that, you know, we've seen now that we can do a lot of business without travel, we can do a lot of things digitally. Maybe the kind of old ideas we had around opportunities for low-income people can begin to think about their lives moving towards green livelihoods as well. So I do think that's another opportunity for us to explore further. And for CFI, I know that we've identified this as a, as a critical area for us to look into in the future. That's terrific and inspiring. Mayada, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you, listeners, for joining us for this second to last episode of VentureCast Rebuild. We'll be back next week for our final episode of the season. Thank you for listening.